the subject of giving. Uh, but as we've been considering that over the past few weeks, that's the subject that we're considering this morning. Now, how we think about the things around us makes a massive difference to the way that we consider the world and the way that we act towards the world. For example, most of the time as Westerners, when we think about time, we think about the future being ahead of us, and we think about the past it being behind us, and we're moving forwards into the future. And so time is this straight line. But uh, in other cultures of the world, that's not always the case. So, for example, in Mandarin Chinese, one of the ways they talk about time is the future as being down and the past as being up. And this is quite a different way of thinking about the world around us and, and the way time works. We use various other images as well to think about the world and how it works. Uh, one of the things that I'm interested in as a psychologist is the psychology of crowd behaviour. And there's a lot of research into how crowds behave and how fear starts to, to grip a crowd and then people start to panic and sometimes stampedes occur. Why does that occur? Well, sometimes people use this image of fear as a, a contagious virus, fear as a contagion, and it just rapidly spreads from one person to another and then irrationally the crowd starts to stampede. But then there's been a lot of researchers that point out that's actually not a very helpful image because it undermines the rationality of people and it, it pretends that people don't think reasonably about what's going on. And so maybe that image of fear as a contagion isn't terribly helpful. And so the ways in which we think about the world can actually distort our view of reality. But how then do we think about money? Uh, sometimes people think about money as something that they use to feather their nest. And so you've got this image of nice little nest and you're using it to make everything comfortable for yourself. Or maybe you use your money as a safety net to make sure that you've got plenty provided for you so that when things go wrong then you've got money to stop anything bad happening. Or maybe you invest your money because you want to see your, your, your investment growing and so you've got image of growth there. And we've got all these different images that help us to understand what money is and what it does and that's the way that we think about abstract things. But in our passage this morning, Paul uses a striking image of money to get us to rethink our relationship to money because he describes it as seed. And he tells us that God gives us this seed so that we can sow it and so that we can then reap a harvest from it. Of course, he's not talking about sowing it in an investment fund so that we can reap good returns from it. For Paul, the harvest is a harvest of righteousness. He wants us to sow our money so that we can reap a harvest of righteousness which will lead to meeting others' needs and which will lead to praise for God himself. And by getting us to rethink our view of money, we discover how God would have us act towards money and how he would have us use it. And over the past couple of chapters, in chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians, Paul has been very focused on this issue of money because there's a very specific need in Jerusalem with the saints there. They're in great financial distress. And so he's asked various churches, including the Corinthians, to contribute to a collection for the saints at Jerusalem. And he's been thinking about it for this past couple of chapters. And as he comes to this section in chapter 9, verse 6 to the end of the chapter, he gets them to fundamentally rethink their ideas about money uh, so that they're not going to only donate to this fund for the saints at Jerusalem, but that they'll actually have a proper understanding of the way that money works in, in God's economy, as it were. So we're going to read the text together and see what the Lord says to us through the Apostle Paul. 
So it's 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 6. And Paul, he writes, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for, the, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the saints, the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And this is the word of the Lord to us through the Apostle Paul. Paul, he begins this section with this wonderful image of money as seed. He says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And there's several passages in the Bible that echo this kind of principle of we get what we put into it. And so the book of Proverbs has numerous proverbs that have this kind of image. Proverbs 11.25 says that a generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. And so Paul, he, he takes this image, but he makes it a deliberately agricultural image, and he uses this image of seed. And he, he says that if you've got this seed and you're really sparing in how you use it, you're not going to get a good harvest. You're not going to get very much growth from it. But if you sow generously and plant lots of seed, then you're going to get a good return from it. But before um, we think more about what this actually means and what Paul says about it, we have to make a clarification because... There's lots of popular preachers in TV who preach what's known as the prosperity gospel. And very often you'll turn on a TV channel and they'll say, if you sow a seed in my ministry, then you will reap a tremendous harvest. You know, you know sow a seed of $100 and you, you'll reap $1,000. And the, the emphasis there is that what you put in, you will reap back in financial terms. There's many problems with this whole way of thinking. But one of the biggest problems with it, obviously, is motivated entirely by greed. The, the greed of the preacher because they just want more and more money coming into their ministry. And then they inculcate this, this uh, attitude of greed in their listeners because they're only motivated by the fact that if they put money in, then they're going to get more money back somehow or another. And so this just creates this whole atmosphere of greed, which is not at all what Paul is thinking about. Because when Paul is telling us to sow the seed and to reap a harvest, he's not talking about getting financial returns back. He's trying to get us to see the variety of ways in which God will actually use the money that we have sown to accomplish his purposes, to bring praise to him, to meet the needs of others. 
And so, as Paul says in verse 10, it, it reaps a harvest of righteousness, not necessarily a harvest of greater financial returns. And having this image in mind then, it helps us to see that this money that we've got given to us by God is seed that he wants us to sow. And we need to think then, when we're using our money, about what kind of returns it's going to get. We've got to think, well, if I put this seed in this particular place, what's it going to do? What kind of return is it going to produce for God? Or if I invest it here, what kind of return for God is that going to produce? And so we need to think about what's going to produce the biggest harvest for God. Now, Paul is clearly thinking here about how the Corinthians ought to be supplying the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. And so he's saying that there's a field here that I'm telling you about, I have been telling you about, where if you invest in this, if you sow your seed there, then you are going to make a tremendous return. It's going to produce great results for you. And so he is encouraging the saints at Corinth to, to give generously to the Jerusalem believers so that they will get a good return on it. But having then encouraged them to invest their money into this particular area of need, he has to deal with some concerns that arise. And in verses 7 to 11, he deals with the kind of concern that sometimes arises where people are afraid that if they give generously, then they're not going to have enough for themselves. And so he has to then tackle that idea and reassure them that they can trust in God that if they give generously, that God is going to provide for them, they don't need to be afraid. Now, previously, we need to think about the fact that in chapter 8, verse 13, he's not trying to get the Corinthians to give away more than they actually have. You can't give away more than you actually have. And he says that he's trying to produce equality because there's a need in Jerusalem and the Corinthians have lots of money, then they should share the surplus that they have with the saints in Jerusalem so that there would be equality. He's not trying to make them suffer. And so he's encouraging a sacrificial kind of giving with the realisation then that God is going to be able to provide for our needs so that we can give generously without fear. And so he wants people not to give with a, a sense of fear and trepidation that they're not going to have enough, but he wants people to give cheerfully. And this is what he comes to in, in verse 7 and 8. He says in verse 7 that God doesn't want them to give reluctantly. He wants them to give cheerfully. Because giving reluctantly, while it might meet, meet people's needs, giving reluctantly isn't going to demonstrate the kind of faith that shows that we trust God, the kind of faith that glorifies God uh, in our giving. And so he wants us to give cheerfully. And so he says there that God loves a cheerful giver. That is, God loves people who give generously to the needs of his people precisely because this demonstrates that they value the very things that he values. He values his people. He wants his people to be cared for. And when we make that our priority, and when we love to care for God's people, then God loves that. He appreciates that deeply. But verse 8 then builds on this by explaining why we can give cheerfully, why we don't need to have fear and trepidation. Because God is able to actually meet our needs. And so it says there that God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. And literally the text says here that God is able to abundantly supply you with all grace. 
And it keeps on emphasizing this word all again. So God's going to give you all grace so that you're going to have all that you need so that you can meet um, all kinds of uh, needs at all times so that you can uh, actually do everything that God has called you to do. And so by stressing this word all again and again, what Paul is emphasizing is how God is really generous towards us and able to meet our needs that we have And Paul then, he backs this up by quoting from Psalm 112, where he has this description of the righteous person. And in Psalm 112, you read that Psalm, you you see what the kind of godly righteous person's life is like. And part of that image is someone who, who gives generously to those in need so that the Psalm says their righteousness endures forever. Uh, and this idea of righteousness enduring forever probably means that their, their righteous deeds are remembered forever by the people who are helped, but primarily by God who doesn't let our generosity go unnoticed and God never forgets. And so having then laid this foundation that we don't need to fear, that we can trust God who will provide for us, Paul hammers home this point in verses 10 and 11 that money is like seed And since God then gives us this seed, he supplies seed to the sower, then we've got to use it wisely and invest it wisely so that we can reap a harvest of righteousness. So this ensures then that we can be generous in every occasion and it results in thanksgiving to God as our righteousness is then appreciated by others. So the basic point that Paul is making here is that we ought to give generously to others because God gives us money The same way as a farmer would give his workers seed to sow in a field, God gives us money as seed so that we can then use it generously and produce a return for our master. And if God is the one who then supplies it to us, he's the one for whom the harvest exists and he's the one who's going to make it bear a harvest. And as we think about how we ought to then apply this to our own lives, I think it's important to to come back to a clarification again, because it's, it's possible to misread what Paul says here and think to ourselves that, well, that because we can be assured that God is going to provide for us when we're generous with our money, then it's possible to think to ourselves, well, actually then, if I just keep on giving, God's going to keep on giving me more and more money. And if we did that, then we would very quickly run out of money. And certainly I remember... And this kind of misunderstanding, I only raise it because it happened to me early when when I was just married, when I just started working. I made a regular point of giving generously. And when it got towards the end of the month, I discovered that my money started to run out. And I was like, hmm, so I don't have money to actually be generous to other people. What's happening here? And so I started to wonder, well, what exactly is Paul talking about when he's saying that he's going to supply the money for us that we actually need so that we can continue to be generous to others? I think what Paul says here has to be read in light of what he says previously in chapter 8, that Paul is seeking equality between believers rather than seeking one group of believers to suffer and the other group of believers just receive all of the money. So clearly, he's not imagining that the more money you give away, then just the more money is going to keep on piling into your bank account, this never-ending supply of money. Um, Otherwise, it would cease to be any kind of sacrificial or costly giving because the money would just keep on coming in for you. So what does he actually mean? Well, in chapter 9, verse 7, he says that each one should give as they have decided to give. 
Uh, the point here is that each person needs to make a consideration in light of how much money they've got, in light of their resources, how much they can realistically give. But in weighing up that kind of realistic giving, we ought not to be fearful. We ought not to think to ourselves, oh, I've got to make sure that I provide lots of money for myself because I need to look after myself. Paul is encouraging that we shouldn't be fearful, but that we should be generous, not in the sense of giving away more money than we actually have, because that then becomes foolish, but in being generous within our means. And so when we do this, then God is able to take our generous use of the the seed that he has given to us to produce a harvest of righteousness. And then it's important then to apply that to ourselves. Because whether it's giving on a Lord's Day morning or whether it's giving to a specific need that we see in the lives of other believers, we need to think about that gift of money as planting seed. God has given us that seed to sow so that we would reap a harvest. And we ought to give generously within our means. Because God loves this cheerful kind of giving that trusts him as the generous God who actually provides for us. We ought not to think to ourselves, oh, there's a need that's been announced. I'm going to, you know, give a token gesture just to show that I've actually done something and placate my conscience. We ought to sit down and think to ourselves, okay, so here's the money that I've got that I can actually spare. How can I give that most generously to produce the biggest harvest for God? And the biggest amount of praise for God. And when we think about money in that way, then it starts to get us to think about it in terms of how God would want us to think about it. How we can use it best, not to enrich ourselves and to make our own lives more comfortable, but in order to further God's work and to see God's people actually being provided for. Now, we've already referred to this harvest that's produced as the harvest of righteousness that's referred to in verse 10. But we come to verses 12 to 14. Paul, he expands on what he means by this harvest. What what is actually produced by giving generously to the Lord's people's needs? And he finishes verse 11 by assuring the believers that not only will God provide for their needs, but that your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. And he goes on to explain in verse 12 that not only does their gift meet the needs of the saints, but it produces this overflow of thanksgiving to God. And this is then, it's part of what Paul means by producing this harvest. It produces a harvest of thanksgiving. Lots of people thank God when they receive from the generosity of the Lord's people. And because we are believers who love God, then we love God being praised. We love to hear God being praised. And so it actually causes great encouragement when we discover that we can actually increase the praise of God by meeting the needs of other believers. And Paul expands on this in verse 13. He says, Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. When we trust in the Lord Jesus, when we confess our allegiance to the gospel, that ought to produce a change in our lives. It inevitably produces a change in our lives. And one of the ways in which it produces a change is that it makes us care for the things that God cares about. It makes us care for the people that God cares about. And it makes us care for the Lord's people themselves. And so when others see this change in the lives of the Corinthians, 
They are going to praise God and say, look at what a change has been produced in their lives. Look at their concern for other believers. And they're going to praise God because of that. And not only did they praise God, but then they also pray for the Corinthians. Verse 14 says that in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. And it's worth pondering this fact that when believers receive, especially these Jerusalem believers, receive this gift... They don't praise the Corinthians and say, my, what excellent people the Corinthians are. What fantastic chaps they are for giving us all this money. They recognize the ultimate origin of this kindness is rooted in God himself. And so they thank God because he is the one who's given, given it. Because as we give money, we recognize that the money that's given to us is a gift from God himself. And when others receive that, other believers receive that, they they thank God because they recognize that he is the ultimate giver. We trace every good back to the ultimate source, God himself. And even though God uses various roots and channels and people to actually bring blessing to others, he himself is the one who receives the ultimate thanks. Paul isn't here focusing so much on what it's like for us to receive gifts and say, when you receive gift, you ought to give thanks, although that is true. Paul's thinking about what it's like to actually give money. And when he, he gets you to think about that, he's saying that when you give money, this actually produces praise in the lives of other believers. And because we want God to be praised, this is actually a great incentive to give money. You can actually make more praise for God by giving generously to other believers who are in need. And of course, this parallels what the Lord Jesus told us today in Matthew chapter 5 and 16, where he says, let your light shine before people so that they would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And the point there is that we should live such lives that, that display how good our God is, how good our Father is, that other people will see what we've done and not praise us, but praise our Father in heaven, praise our God. And this is all then part of what it means to reap a harvest from generous giving. And that should be in our minds when we give. We shouldn't be giving merely to meet material needs, although that is important. But we should be thinking about how this will actually produce praise for God as well. And this then is a great incentive for giving. And we should give so that he is praised as the one who is the source of all good. And what... And so giving turns out to be this way of reaping a great harvest, not only meeting needs, but also bringing praise to God. <clears throat> As Paul brings this section to a close, he returns to a really crucial point in verse 15. He, br he brings us to the point of the ultimate grind of our giving, the ultimate reason uh, for our giving. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, his unspeakable gift. It's so good that we cannot describe how great it is. What is this gift that Paul is referring to here? I think it has to be read very closely in conjunction with what Paul has just said in verse 14, because in verse 14, he's talked about the grace that has been given to the Corinthians, that has saved them, that has changed them, so that they are then willing to give generously to the needs of other believers. And so Paul says, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given to you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. 
And so the gift then refers to the grace that has been given to us. Grace in its fullness is the gift that has been given to us that cannot be described, that is inexpressibly wonderful. Because the fact is that God in his grace has chosen to love us sinners. He has chosen to send his own son to be our redeemer. He has chosen to intervene in our lives through his Holy Spirit. And this, in, in all of its fullness, is what it means for God to give grace to us. And this is the inexpressible gift of God. It's the work of an unspeakably generous God. And then Paul, he wants the Christians at Corinth to reflect on this generous, gracious giving of God so that it would be the model for their own giving. He wants them to see God as the one who is the ultimate example of giving. Because if they can see what God is like, then it will save them from being clutching, grasping, self-centered in their views of money. Already in verse eight, verse, chapter 8, verse 9, he's referred them back to the Lord Jesus, who, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich. But this generosity that Paul describes here isn't just the generosity of the Lord Jesus, it's the generosity of the triune God, God himself as the eternally generous giving God. And the very essence of salvation is the idea of God's gift towards us. God gives himself, he gives his own life, a life which is purchased through the giving of his own son at the cross, a life which is shared through the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and a life which is brought to consummation in the fellowship of the Father, Son, and Spirit in eternity. And so the whole Trinity is at work in this generous gift of grace. When we think about that, it makes us realize that Paul's encouragement to give isn't just an add-on to his gospel message, as if he's just saying, so here's the gospel. Oh, yeah, and you should also just give some money to people that are in need. Because for him, giving is at the heart of the gospel. And so giving, then, is the chief characteristic of those who have been transformed by the gospel. When we discover God as the generous God who gives freely of himself to the most undeserving, then we realize that God is transforming us to become people who are like that. And so I think we are, we are never more like God than when we are generous and giving like he is in the gospel. And so this is a very appropriate note for Paul to end on. Uh, end on this section as he as he exhorts the saints to give to the needs at Jerusalem because for all the reasons to give none reach higher than this yes they are to give because this is what they should do they should give because it will meet the needs of others they should give because it will bring praise to God but fundamentally they give because it's rooted in the character of God himself and when people see that and realize just how good God is then this produces praise for God as well. And so as we seek to apply these words to ourselves, I pray that this will motivate us to be generous to those in need, especially other believers in need, even as we seek to model the graciousness of our God who saw us in our need and gave up everything, even death on the cross for the Lord Jesus, so that we 
would experience the richness of his grace. May God help us to live like this. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the grace that has been shown to us in the gospel, the love that has transformed us and won us from our darkness at such a cost.